0: You're listening to the UnSiloed podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. UnSiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to UnSiloed. This is uh, Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Myra Strober and Abby Davison. Myra is an emeritus professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and Abby, who was a former student of us, is a social innovation leader and used to work at The Gap for many years, and they are the co-authors of this new book called Money and Love, an Intelligent Roadmap for Life's Biggest Decisions. Now, this book came out of a course that Myra taught at Stanford for many years and before that at Berkeley called, was it, Work and Family. And Abby, you were a student of Myra's, I guess, in the class of 2008 and have had an opportunity to continue to engage with Myra on this course. And I've been doing this podcast for a while. And one of the great things about it is I have an opportunity to learn from people who are teaching unique courses and how these unique courses get kind of spun out into books. And so when I was thinking about this course, Work and Family, it seemed like such a no-brainer, right, to have a course like this, particularly for people in business school, right? Not only because managing a household does require an awful lot of skill, but so many of the decisions that you have to make as a professional utilize the skills and insights that you get in business school. And yet, people aren't given those tools. They kind of have to figure them out. Do you think that this is something that belongs in the curriculum of not only every business school, but colleges, high schools, right? You mentioned that we don't even teach decision-making at the high school level. I mean, it seems like decision-making is pretty key to becoming a successful person.
1: Well, I have always been amazed that this course is not taught at other business schools, but it is also not taught at law schools or medical schools or any graduate program. I've taught it to undergraduates with somewhat less success because I don't think that undergraduates realize quite yet (laughs) what they're in for. But by the time you get to graduate school, you understand very well what the challenges are going to be. And the course has an interesting history. When I first started teaching it at Berkeley and then at first at Stanford, I called it Women and Work and it was women who took the class and some men every so often. And then one year, a man from the GSB took the class and said that he thought it was so useful to men that if I changed the name of the class from Women in Work to Work and Family, he would personally help me recruit men for the following year. And so I kept my promise and he kept his. And by the time I stopped teaching the class, the course was 40% men. And the conversations were so much better and so much more interesting, and so this book is for men as well as for women.
0: (laughs) Abby, you took the course, right? When you were in business school, what prompted you to take a course like this? Did this seem like it had academic, you know, merit? I mean, I I remember we were discussing before we started the podcast that when I teach a course on core finance, and sometimes I'll try to make mention of how those concepts are applicable in your everyday life, whether it's intertemporal decision-making or deciding on the margin and so forth. And uh, some students will resist this and they'll say, listen, you know, is that going to be on the exam? If it's not on the exam, I want to use a discounted cash flow approach to valuing companies. I don't want to hear about stuff like household and life and decision-making. What attracted you to a course like this when you were in school?
2: Well, when I was in my early and mid-20s, so before I found Myra's class, I really struggled, like so many people in that age, to approach big life decisions in a way that I felt good about. I didn't know how to make a decision about where to live. Could I move across the country, even if I didn't have a job there, just because I had always wanted to live in California? If I was dating someone and they seemed like things were going well, how did we decide to get more serious? And what did that look like? And so I made those decisions. I certainly, you know, it didn't stop me from moving forward through life. But I just didn't feel like anyone had ever told me how to make those decisions. And so when I got to myers class, I had six years of experience before I went back to graduate school. And when I got to myers class, I realized why making those decisions had been so hard. And it was because the conventional wisdom that we're all taught to separate decisions related to finance and career and think about those with our heads and analyze them and treat decisions about relationships and love separately and really think about how we feel when we're someone with someone and use our hearts. I mean, that's a terrible approach because all of life's biggest decisions have an element of money and love in them. So you need to use your head and your heart together. And if you compartmentalize those decisions, you're missing a tremendous part of the picture. And so I took Myra's class with man i met at the gsb we had been dating for less than a year at the time and we had to make big decisions we had to decide are we going to look for jobs in the same city are we going to move in together if we end up in the same city and these are conversations that i might have pushed off we both would have pushed off if we didn't have to make them and if we didn't have the benefit of myra's class prompting us to have those difficult uncomfortable awkward conversations fueled by data, and with all the other lessons and wisdom of the course, and it really changed our lives. And we've now been married over 13 years. We have two kids. We came back for many years as guest speakers in Myra's class and have been road testing the material and the wisdom that she taught, and it works. And that's why I was so delighted to join forces with Myra on this book to share all the lessons that should not be the best kept secret for just the people who were able to take the class
0: well myra let's go back to when you started your academic career and you recount this in your uh, memoir sharing the work right you started off at uc berkeley in the economics department and i believe you were told by your i guess department chair that you would never get tenure because you were a mother i was wondering if you could recount that i mean it's just astonishing to think about how recent that was And then when you joined Stanford, right, you were, I believe, among the first tenured female faculty, right? So is there something specific about business and economics that makes it difficult or made it difficult to succeed as a mother? Or was that something that was kind of true across academia, across, you know, the professions, across the entire economy?
1: Before I came to Berkeley... I had been an assistant professor on the tenure track at the University of Maryland. And then I left that job to follow my husband to Stanford because he got a job at Stanford. And instead of saying, well, let's go on the job market together, let's see what we both can find if we're looking for new jobs. I just said, California, here I come. And uh, moved out to California with him And in those days, the jobs that you got were mostly because of who your thesis advisor knew. And my thesis advisor, unfortunately, didn't know anybody at Stanford, but he did know someone at Berkeley. So I had an interview at Berkeley and I was hired at Berkeley, but not as an assistant professor. I was hired as a lecturer. And that means you have no security of employment. You can't ever possibly get tenure because you're not on the tenure track. And so when I went to see the department chair to ask him why I was in this position and two of my classmates from MIT were on the Berkeley faculty and they were assistant professors, the department chair told me it was because I lived in Palo Alto, which was nonsense. And I always say I became a feminist on the Bay Bridge because I was driving home from Berkeley to Palo Alto and realized that what he had told me was ridiculous. And when I went back to see him again, he told me that I had two children and they didn't know what would happen to me. And I said, put me on the tenure track and in six years, we'll all see what happens to me. I'm not asking you to give me tenure today. And he said, I could never sell that to the department.
0: Well, Abby, one of the points that you made just a moment ago, which was in the book, is this idea about making decisions across domains. And. There's a huge self-help literature out there, tons of books. And I think many of those books do, as you said, have specific domains, right? Like, here's how you succeed in work. Here's how you succeed in, in love. And do you think that that's how people approach problems? I mean, do you think that they don't think about the trade-offs at the kind of higher level? You see this problem in companies all the time, right? You know, you will have the marketing people make their decisions within the marketing domain and the operations people make. And you know, it's supposed to be the senior leadership that kind of integrates these things and makes the big high level corporate decisions. So do you think that within the individual is this corporation and it has these little departments and the departments are doing their thing and somehow like the senior leadership team is just out to lunch? Is that kind of how we approach things?
2: Well, I think there certainly is some truth to the fact that we're all a bit siloed in our thinking the past couple years have taught us that no matter how hard we try to separate our professional identities from our personal identities we are one person and they are all mashed up against each other inside of us all the time and so the sooner we start to think about our lives holistically and consider the different elements of our identity right i am a professional. I'm also a mother. I'm also a daughter. I'm also a wife. I'm also a friend. And all of those identities are important to me. I can't prioritize all of them at once. So I need to make choices and I need to make trade-offs about what makes sense for the identity that I want to prioritize at any given time. And if you go too far down one path of prioritizing one of your identities, say work, you'll realize that all those other things that are important to you have no space, right, at the table. And maybe your life feels lacking and you're not, um, you have, your bank account is full, but your other parts of your tank are empty. And so you're right, there have been other books that, and other, you know, lots of great resources that talk about decision-making. What our book adds in addition to the head and the heart and thinking about holistically is bringing in the other people that are so important to those decisions right because when i took Myra's class i wasn't making decisions about my own career and my life in a vacuum there was somebody who i really wanted to spend more time with i was thinking maybe i wanted to spend my life with and we needed to work together to think about how both of our professional identities both of our personal identities could be merged and how do you think about those things together and so none of us is certainly a company in isolation. But say we're all companies on the stock market, right? If you're going <laughs> to extend this analogy. And we need to be thoughtful about how we are interacting with the other important enterprises in our lives.
0: Now, I think some of the more poetic or romantically inclined people might find your book difficult. Because to some extent, if we think that traditionally the area of love and romance and marriage and children is is something that is governed by let's say, you know, less practical and uh, more romantic criteria. And then the work stuff is governed by more rational and disciplined thinking. You're advocating that we think of these things together, but it seems like you're not coming from the position, hey, let's make our work decisions more about romance. It seems one critique would be you're actually saying, let's make our family decisions a little bit more practical. So, you know, why is it that people resist this idea that what you're doing when you're starting a family, I think you guys said you're co-founding a rather boring nonprofit. Could you dig into that? I mean, that, there's gonna be some people that are gonna resist that idea.
1: Well, first of all, we're not necessarily advocating bringing romance to work. I think what we're saying is that the work decisions that you make, that you might assume are only work decisions have huge impact for your family. And if you're going to make a major work decision, You need to communicate your ideas with the people who matter to you. Certainly, if you have a spouse or a significant other, if you have teenage children and you're going to move across the country with them, they might want to be involved (laughs) or if not involved, at least notified before the moving truck arrives that you're thinking about this. So we think that people, in fact, do take financial and monetary matters into account when they make love decisions, but they're kind of ashamed of it. It seems uh, too materialistic. And so either they push that aside or they don't want to talk about it. But in fact, there are elements of this. I had one student in my class who said that she was engaged to a guy whose family insisted that they have a prenup before they get married. And she broke the engagement and said, if he doesn't want to share his money with me, I don't want to share my life with him. And I think that was the most obvious situation where money and love are intertwined.
0: So you're saying that we do consider these things. It's just that we don't make it explicit.
1: Well, we we don't want to make it explicit, perhaps in our own mind, but we certainly don't want to tell anybody else about it, lest we be branded as insufficiently romantic or too materialistic or however you want to think
2: about it. And I think it has to do with a lot of the fantasies that are out there, right? In Hollywood, in social media, there's a lot of imagery and storylines around finding the one. And to your quote, it's from Lori Gottlieb, when you find the one and when you, you know have children and you build a family, like that's not necessarily the hot romantic stuff, right? My husband and I used to joke when our kids were real little that our texts were like landing airplanes. It's like, OK, I'm going to come home at this time, and you're going to get at this time. And it's like, yeah, that's the stuff of life. And frankly, there's a lot more. It's kind of people who are so focused on their wedding day, right, and spend all this time and energy planning this perfect wedding, not thinking about the decades that are coming after that. And so it's not our fault, necessarily, that we have so much focus on this romantic illusion of what life is like, because that's what we're shown. But what you quickly realize when you enter that stage, and you're going to be very disappointed if you don't go in with your eyes wide open, is that there are so many decisions that you will face with the person who you decide to spend your life with that are not romantic decisions. They're how do you care for your aging parents? How do you decide where you live? I mean, these are are decisions that we advocate bringing a different level of thinking to, right? So we talk about Daniel Kahneman's System One, which is the impulsive, instinctual kind of knee jerk decision making and system two, which is the rational, more logical, considered decision making. And when you make decisions quickly, you're much more likely to be in system one. And so what we advocate and why we have a whole framework around decision making is to slow down and bring in other elements to that decision that can help you make a decision that you are less likely to regret.
0: And so when you're looking for a co-founder, to start a household with, family with. What kind of approach should you take? I, I have a former student who, when he came to business school, he said that his main goal at business school was to find a co-founder. I mean, not like a business co-founder. And he took a very systematic approach, right? He, you know, he created a spreadsheet and he would work on various, you know, hackathons with different founders and he would mark off their pros and their cons. And ultimately by the time he graduated, he found his perfect co-founder and they went off and started a unicorn. Should we be taking a similar approach? I mean, at what point do those difficult conversations, those big conversations that you talk about, at what point should they take place to make sure that you are in alignment with your, you know, your household co-founder?
1: Well, I think the similarities are there in terms of finding a business partner and finding a life partner, but there are also important differences. And I think that people who say that you need to make love decisions with your heart are not entirely wrong your heart surely needs to be part of the decision or your gut or however you want to think about it. And, you know, you may find a co-founder for a business who works well with you, but you wouldn't like to spend your evenings and weekends with them. You wouldn't like to go on vacation with them and that all works fine, but it doesn't work fine if this is your life partner. So certainly need to, before you have any conversations of any depth, You need to be sure that you're linked to this person in some way through your heart, through your gut, that you're excited about this person in some way. Now, of course, this is the way Americans find partners. I have had over the years students from Pakistan and India, men students. I've never had women students who like the arranged marriage situation, but I've had men students who tell me that when it comes time for them to choose a partner, they're going to rely on their parents and that they think their parents understand them well and have their best interests at heart and will find a partner for them that they will be able to be successful with. And they don't talk about their heart. So this is in part cultural.
2: To the question of when it makes sense to have these conversations, one thing I learned in Myra's class is earlier than it feels comfortable to, because I think When we are first getting to know someone and we think that there's a spark there and we want them to like us, we're hesitant to bring up those big topics for fear that there might be big differences that are revealed. But that's exactly what you want to do. You actually need to turn those rocks over and understand if you feel strongly about raising your future children in one faith, does your potential partner feel equally strongly about raising their children in a different faith. I mean, better to get that out early so you can talk about it, decide if it is a place that you can come to compromise about or if it's actually an intractable problem and you're not going to be able to get to resolution. And certainly better to find that out on date 10 than when you're already engaged and you're making the wedding guest list and you're realizing, oh, well, my parents are gonna be upset if we have you know, a rabbi officiate. Well, <laughs> you know, please talk about those things before. And so I did have those scary conversations m- certainly before I felt things were ready. But one thing Myra says, which I love, is the diving board is not gonna get any lower. And so you do at some point need to jump off have the conversation, see how they go. And part of what you're learning is not do you have the exact perfect answers that match the other person's, but can you work through differences together? Can you look at a challenge, approach it on the same side and get to the other side and figure out a way that to resolve it that seems fair to both of you? And over time, that is what you do in a relationship. You change, they change. You're navigating these changes and differences over time. And the earlier you start practicing that and flexing that muscle, the better.
0: Do you think it's more difficult today because we don't have a standard off-the-shelf template? I mean, it seems like everybody has to figure out the division of labor and figure out their life trajectory kind of from scratch, right? Is every household kind of like a startup now where you're running ab tests and you're you know you're innovating on the fly
1: well it's true that there are more decisions to be made now because things are more in flux and there are more models on the other hand i was married when i was 22 and i think i'm a much better negotiator and i understand all the complexities much better than i did at 22 And I'm delighted that the age of marriage has increased because I think 28-year-olds and 30-year-olds are far more equipped to know, first of all, their own preferences. The first item in our framework is clarify. Clarify your own goals, clarify your own wishes. And that's very hard to do when you're 22. You don't have enough experience, let alone age 20, because that's when I decided to marry this person. We got married at 22. So yes, there are more choice possibilities. It is like a startup each time. But on the other hand, you have models. So we advocate checking in with other couples that you think are doing it the way you might like to do it, finding out their secret sauce or not. So it's hard, but it's certainly not impossible.
2: And I think there's more openness and willingness of people to share what's going on, right? So I think we have, Certainly a culture that has made reality shows, whether or not you think they're reality, um, that's more of a thing. And so there's an openness to see how other people are doing it. And so when my husband and I boyfriend at the time, we're writing our final paper for Myra's class, we checked in with other couples that had lived together and were successful in terms of, you know, they were still together, maybe they had gotten married, and couples that had lived together and broken up and were unsuccessful. And they were very willing to share with us what they did that they think led to those successful outcomes and what led to the unsuccessful outcomes. And then we put together what we decided was our blueprint for how we wanted to merge our bank accounts, how we wanted to divide household chores, how we wanted to spend holidays. And that element of considering those things ahead of time was so helpful to us. So I don't think you're you're in a startup vacuum. You can actually see what has worked for others going before you and make your own decisions.
0: Yeah, I think at one point you, you mentioned that particularly with respect to running your household and housework, it, it helps to have a plan, to have sort of a a division of of labor. I think a lot of people just sort of assume that that's all going to sort itself out. And you have two different approaches, right? You mentioned sort of a top-down approach where you decide on the division of labor and then assign specific tasks. This conscious articulation of the division of labor seems like such a sensible idea. Why don't people do this?
1: Well, what I found in my class was that perhaps the biggest learning that took place was the students receiving my list of household chores that needed to be done. They had no idea, despite the fact that they had grown up in families, the extent of the chores. And so, you know, there were pages and pages of chores to be done and then to be divided. So often people don't even know what are the tasks to be divided. And then they get to it and they talk about I like to do this, you like to do that. I like to do this and I'm going to do it because I hate the way you do it. (laughs) And it's not just what you do, but when you do it and how you do it. So there's an enormous amount to be decided here.
0: Do you think that's an artifact of modern child rearing practices? I mean, there used to be this course called Home Ec, right? (laughs) I remember, I think I took a course in this when I was in school. And I think in some ways, children are kept in the dark when it comes to how households are run they're they're sort of told study and play and you know everything's kind of taken care of for them why is it such a difficult realization to discover that you know a household is indeed like a small business
2: Well, we'd also talk about the trend towards intensive parenting in our book and the idea that parents are signing their children up for more extracurriculars than ever, trying to make sure that they're competitive, that they can get into a good college and secure a good job. And I think a lot of times chores have fallen off that list. But what the data tells us from studies is that Children who have a share of the household chores actually learn responsibility. And there are really positive outcomes, even if it means they can't do their you know, fifth curricular that particular week. And so it's something that my husband and I think a lot about. And we actually have a family meeting every week where we talk about what went well in our family. We talk about the week ahead. We talk about the chores that need to get done because we don't want to raise children who have no idea what goes into running a household. And I think that this trend towards certainly upper middle class and upper class parents trying to make sure that their children are going to end up on the the best side of the economic divide is working against everyone learning what it takes to be an adult and live in a world where you have a a house that's clean and um, and all the chores are done, and a partner who's not resentful, right? That's the other thing that I think has changed a lot with dual career couples becoming more the norm, and it's certainly the percentage is higher in millennials than the previous generations, and then it's certainly projected to increase even more. When you have two people who are fully contributing in the workforce, they also need to be fully contributing at home in order for that relationship to be equitable.
0: I think I read a study a while back, It must have been like 15 years ago, that showed that a substantial percentage of graduates from Harvard Business School wound up dropping out of the workforce. And of course, they're they're referring to women who had gone and gotten their MBA. And I think the gist of this article was, wow, isn't isn't that a waste, right? That people would go and get this MBA uh, and it's very difficult to get into this MBA program. And then, you know, it's being squandered on people that aren't participating in the paid workforce. Do you think that we need to completely change the degree of respect that we give to people who are managing households? I mean, to to some extent now, I mean, everyone is doing a little bit of both, right? Do you think that now that men are playing a, a more significant role in managing households that might drive more status to that role?
1: Well, to me, this is an extremely interesting and a complicated question because on top of all of the trends that we've already talked about, there is a trend toward increased life expectancy. And so the demographers say that people who are born today are likely to have a life expectancy of age 100. Now, if that's the case, they're surely not going to be retiring at 65. And the education that they get when they're 25 is unlikely to be useful to them when they're 65. So we're going to have to rethink all of the steps that we have now. And I believe that in the future, it will be common for young parents or parents of young children to leave the workforce for a few years and nobody will blink an eye or one of them will leave. And even today, it is much easier for someone with an MBA or perhaps not a medical degree, but most degrees to come back after a few years out of the workforce raising children. So I think that's a very positive uh, step. And I think that in the future, we're going to have to figure out how to raise children (laughs) while people continue to work. We're going to have to have better childcare systems so that perhaps people don't ever have to leave the workforce. I think we're in a transition period where things are pretty much awry and we're going to have to figure out how to straighten all that out.
0: Well, I mean, it seems like the traditional employment model really put pressure on people who dropped out of the workforce, right? If you think about advancement in a typical law firm or advancement within academia, right? You know, there's sort of this lockstep advancement. And if you step off that escalator for any period of time, you kind of lose out. And it's very difficult to get back into the workforce. I've talked to plenty of women who after spending a few years raising children, try to get back in the workforce and the employers, you know, are very skeptical of them. And even when I've been at faculty meetings, the idea that, oh, well, we've got maternity leave and paternity leave, but it seems like the male faculties, when they take paternity leave, they use that time to just write papers. Whereas the women will use that time to raise children. And so they're inevitably handicapped in that respect. How can we rethink from the employer perspective? providing environments where people can have more flexible career paths.
2: Well, first of all, I think having models, so both men and women who take the benefits that are offered, who take parental leave, we can talk about what they do with that in another conversation, but having models is really important because then the people who are junior and who are on their teams see that it's possible that you can do that and that even, you know, the benefit is offered and there's not a stigma attached to it. And I think also approaching those vacancies as opportunities. Right now, I think there's often the sense of, oh, we have to cover this person's role for four months. That's such a pain. Well, there's a lot of people who are interested in stretch opportunities, stretch assignments, um, getting to perform at a different level than they maybe are today. And if you can't offer them a promotion, perhaps you can offer them an opportunity to learn new skills and work on new projects through those opportunities. And that's something that I've always tried to model in my own teams. And I think it created an atmosphere where, it wasn't I mean, I had one team member told me she wasn't scared to tell anyone on the team that she was expecting because she knew that it would actually be a positive thing for people. And that's you know, we need to make more environments like that, because as Myra said, we don't prioritize caregiving in this country at any level. And the more that our workplaces can play a role in showing the positive side of this part of human existence that is necessary to continue to grow our gdp to continue to remain you know, a competitive nation <laughs> the better off everyone will be but we have some distance to travel before we're there
0: do you think Myra, the, the course that you have been teaching all these years i know it's primarily targeted at students at managing their own livelihoods and families but do you think that it's had an impact ultimately on them when they get into senior leadership positions where they're they're more understanding of the choices that people have to make?
1: I do. I have had students who have written back to me saying just that they have changed their management style as a result of the course. But I think going back for a moment to academia, I have never been at a faculty meeting or even an informal gathering of faculty where people said, let's figure out how a young parent, woman or man can be heavily involved in child rearing for X number of years and come back with no penalty. Let's figure out how to make that happen. And I believe, academics are pretty smart, that if we put our mind to it, we figure it out. And it would have something to do with spending some number of hours every week keeping up with the literature, making sure you didn't fall behind and probably not leaving for 12 years, but more like three. And we could make it work if we decided that's what we wanted to do. But nobody has put their mind to it. And the last chapter of Abby's in my book is about becoming a change agent at your workplace. And this would be one of the ways in which academics could become change agents. And also in medicine, it's the same thing. Figure out how to allow people to take some time off full-time or part-time and then come back to their careers without losing out.
0: So why not? Why isn't that? I mean, that should be something that at a faculty meeting, I mean, that that should be a strategic priority of every employer. Why do you suppose it's just not on the radar?
1: (laughs) I think most people are very conservative and they just keep doing what they've learned to do all these years. And they say things, especially at institutions like Stanford, oh, this has worked so well for us all this time. Why would we think about changing it without thinking about what benefits the change might bring?
2: I think there's another element, too, in some other industries where actually women can be quite, I don't know what the word is, but like I did it, you can figure it out, right? So it's sort of like, why should we extend any special situations to future employees when we all had to fight tooth and nail to raise our families and keep our jobs like
0: the boot camp concept like you know we you know in the military right
2: right like i survived yes (laughs) exactly
0: well so there's a selection effect right the ones who survived are are the ones that are that are setting the rules and and the ones that didn't survive because the environment was not friendly to them they're the ones that, that are not in the position to contribute to the conversation right that's right
2: right So there's a selection effect for sure. But I do think that there are increasingly employers who, you know, particularly those who are competing for top talent every year, consulting firms, law firms, where they are starting to change. They are seeing, oh, okay, well, what worked when you had a breadwinner caregiver model doesn't work when there are a couple where there isn't anyone at home to, quote unquote, pick up the slack. And so we do need to figure out career lattices. We do need to figure out different types of rotations that we can put in place. We can't expect people to move every few years in order to get a global experience. But how can we approach this more creatively? And we have some examples that we've seen. But to Myra's point, we need to see many, many more, especially if we want to create a workforce that is not constantly faced with the same trade-offs that for decades people have been. And that's why the change maker chapter is so important to us and why we really wanted to end on that note.
0: Well, look, I mean, companies do everything in their power to satisfy their consumers, right? And design customized products. And, you know, they'll gather up all this data to figure out what people's preferences are. And, you know, they'll have algorithms that'll niche market their specific solution to people who have esoteric desires. I mean. Why why isn't that happening on the employment front? Is it simply that the HR side of things is behind the marketing side of things? Or is it that the employees just aren't insisting on it? To some extent, we've internalized the priorities of companies. We've internalized the priorities of the marketplace. Do you think that part of what you're advocating in the book is for people to carefully consider what's best for them and then be more assertive at, trying to make that happen rather than kind of letting their priorities be dictated to them by, you know, whatever happens to be prevailing in the culture or whatever, you know, the corporate corporations are telling them.
1: Well, there certainly are corporations now that have moved to a different model. I think they're corporations who employ a lot of women and need to keep those women uh, happy. And I think that women who have left the workforce and are seeking to come back now, are being helped by uh, startups that are teaching them how to come back. Certainly, if a woman is thinking of leaving the workforce, or a man, for a period of time, they need to keep their contacts live so that when they want to come back, they're in a good position to do that. And certainly, the world is changing. It's now much more possible for a woman to come back. I ask myself continually why that is not true in academia, And I think, as I said before, it's that nobody has really put their mind to this, partly because there still aren't a lot of women faculty, certainly more than they used to be. But when that percentage increases, I think we will see some more innovation as well.
2: well. But my answer to that question is slightly different, which is that to your point, Greg, the marketing teams have such robust data at their fingertips about what customers care about and what customers need. HR systems do not have that agility. They are, in many cases, legacy systems. They are cobbled together. Even newer systems don't have even a field to track whether employees have a caregiver responsibility, right? And so even at companies that are making the software to track the HR status they don't have the ability to do that for their own employees so our book is really a both and book it's both that the companies and the employers need to change and they should and that individuals need to make those choices that push the companies to change that say okay if you're not going to give me a career path that allows me to have a full life outside of work i'm going to vote with my feet i'm going to go somewhere that will and so with that both and mentality we hope that the data systems will evolve and companies are going to be just as sophisticated about slicing and dicing their employee data but we're not there right now
0: you guys introduced this 5c approach to all the issues in the book and and it seems like this 5c approach has applications pretty much everywhere and the final of the five c's was consequences and you advocate for doing like pre-mortems right for all of the the major life decisions and of course, this is a concept that comes from business, hospitals and the military and so forth. Do you think that people fail to do long-term planning in their personal lives more than they do in, in their business lives? We're trained in business to, to really think through the consequences of all of our decisions. What is it about the personal life that leads to perhaps a, uh, a failure to, to do premortem-like thinking?
2: Well, I think it's because humans have a short-term bias, and we're much more likely to overweight the positive or negative consequences of decision in the short term. So take moving, right? If you plan to move, maybe you're trying to find a school district that is a good one for your family, the short term is going to be rough, right? You're going to uproot yourself. You're going to you know, have to meet new people. You're going to have to learn where all the good restaurants and the, the places to do errands are in your new home. But the long-term consequences of having your kids grow up in a place where you feel really good about the education they're getting are much more positive. And so by having different time horizons that we force ourselves to play out in our personal lives, we can overcome some of that short-termism that I think is just a part of being human.
0: Do you think that this idea of decision-making across all domains in your life, is this worthy of departmental right, status? You know, at Stanford, we've got the D school and you can take classes in the D school, whether you are an engineer or whether you're business, whether you're law, it doesn't matter because it sort of applies across whatever domain you're in. It seems like a class like this would benefit pretty much anybody who is a student. So is this deserving of a department? Because I don't know what department it fit in. Was this in organizational behavior? Like where on earth was it and where should it be? And should we have a suite of courses that help you to manage your life? Both career life, professional life,
1: personal life. Well, I think that this topic should be introduced in high school. Mm-hmm. As I say, I think it's too early for high school students. Do
0: we have an A P exam in decision making?
1: Yeah. And I think for me that goes along with having a statistics class in high school so that everybody understands why we need random samples when we take electoral polls <laughs> and not just ask people, what do you think? So, yes, I think decision-making in the larger sense, including statistics, is appropriate in high school. I personally would substitute it for calculus. I think a good statistics course would be a lot more useful than calculus. And in that should be decisions about personal life and career decision and so on. In terms of what department it belongs in, in universities and colleges, I sort of think it doesn't matter. Whoever wants to pick it up should pick it up. So I'm an economist, and I think this relates to economics. It surely also relates to psychology, probably sociology, definitely in business to organization behavior. So it's one of those interdisciplinary courses that doesn't fit neatly anywhere. And I don't know that we need a whole curriculum on it, beginning with freshman year, going through senior year. But we ought to have some kind of return after graduation to take some additional courses as life hits you for real. So I think this is important.
0: I mean, it seems like it's the kind of class where, you know, it shouldn't end when you graduate, right? It should be something where every couple of years you have to check back in. And in fact, maybe your grade should be deferred until 20 years after graduation.
1: Well, the business school at Stanford, I think, is doing a great job through Career Services and Carly in particular to bring this content to graduates, which I think is so important.
2: Yes, there's been so much demand to have workshops at reunions, right? When people are coming back on campus to reconnect with people, to actually give them the space to take a money and love question that's the top of their mind and walk through our framework, get the input from their peers and classmates, and really give some thought to something that sometimes when you're what we advocate for is when you're in your day to day, it's very hard to do the type of expansive thinking that's needed to approach these decisions creatively. And so reunions are the perfect time actually to come back and you're reconnecting to a place that was important to you. But you have something that I'm sure everyone is grappling with at any given time. That relates to money and to love. And so that's another opportunity. But yes, I think that there has been so much traction in the Alumni Career Center because the questions and the challenges that people keep going back to their alma maters with are very connected to this topic.
0: Well, I'm wondering if we could convince US News and the Financial Times to evaluate business schools, not just on career outcomes, but on life outcomes, right? So right now, they look at your income after graduation and how it compares to your income before graduation and I think even when classmates are evaluating other classmates they'll sometimes look to see how successful they are in careers but maybe the school that, that creates the happiest alums should be the ones that get the highest ratings so I tell my students that you know the purpose of an MBA is to teach you how to become a more effective human being and I leave that fairly vague right What does it mean to be an effective human being it means that you are able to, achieve your goals regardless of what they are. And it may not include making lots of money. It may not include climbing the corporate ladder. It may include just becoming a successful parent. And so maybe we need to come up with a new way of you know, evaluating schools. It's gonna be much more complicated though.
2: Much
1: more complicated.
2: <laughs> but yeah, I would posit that instead of happiness, we should be looking at how much do they feel that they have meaning and purpose and fulfillment In their lives. So that's what I would suggest we look at. But I love that idea.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, Myra and Abby, thank you so much for joining me. The book here is called Money and Love. And I think Freud said that those were the two most (laughs) important things or the things that people obsessed on the most. And I think this book does a great job of articulating for today's world how you can navigate both money and love, not separately, but together. Thanks for joining me. Hope to see you guys sometime soon.
2: Thank you.